lest the corruption eat in our churches like a canker. That is my conviction. And if you ask me whether then there are signs or phenomena that a split actually exists, I answer that I am afraid sometimes. I am afraid sometimes that what Professor Hobbiton wrote to the churches in Canada was after all probably true that there is quite a different sound in our church. This is connected with my lecture. That different sound is expressed in many, many ways, but principally concentrates around a new emphasis in our churches on man instead of on God. They say that, after all, in 1924, the Christian Reformed churches in 1924 were probably correct when they said that I and the Reverend Danoff, who were both cast out at that time, were after all one-sided. And that one-sidedness it consists in this, that we made too much emphasis on God and not sufficient emphasis on man. In other words, that we refused, and we still refuse, by the way, to subscribe to a double-track theology, man and God, each running their own track. I'm afraid that there are signs of a real split in our churches, and God forbid that it be true and that it be realized because of the very determined opposition against such a thoroughly reformed and Protestant reformed document as the Declaration of Principles. I'm afraid that there is a split in our churches when I hear Sounds that speak and emphasize responsibility of man, the moral choice that our preaching has been too passive and that we must be active, and that our preaching must stimulate activity. When I listen to all these sounds, I tremble, and I'm afraid. But as I say, we certainly must not have a split if no split exists. 
On the other hand, the worst blood exists, we must have it. That is connected with my subject. The subject is the freedom of man and his responsibility. Man's freedom and his responsibility. A first thought of treating this subject in a synthetic and logical way so that I will divide the subject somewhat as follows. Its idea, its implication, and its manifestation. But for practical reasons, because I think it is more understandable and the subject is somewhat difficult, I finally decided to follow the historical and the analytical division and therefore when I speak on man's freedom and his responsibility, I follow this line. In the state of rectitude, in his fallen state, in the state of perfection. Man's freedom and responsibility in the state of rectitude, in his fallen state, in the state of perfection. What is responsibility? I think that is probably a question that should be answered, and that is answered very seldom by those that speak of responsibility most often. Responsibility is the ability and obligation of the rational and moral creature to respond to God. That is responsibility. His ability as well as his obligation to respond to God. Man is in distinction from God, always under the law. And under the law, he always hears whether he answers positively or negatively the word of God, love me. Love me with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul and with all thy strength and love me with all thy means and in all the world and with all creation. And I say, no matter whether you talk of responsibility or do not talk of responsibility, you can never deny it. Responsibility is no problem. Cannot be a problem. For the simple reason that man can never ignore and can never avoid to answer, to respond to God under the law. He must say either yes or no. He can never avoid it. Now then, the connection with this responsibility stands, of course, man's freedom. His freedom. There are those uh, that have the idea that those of the Calvinistic or of the Reformed faith I cannot speak of man's freedom and of his responsibility because they emphasize the counsel of God. Those are, of course, the Pelagians 
and the Armenian. And there are others, however, and they call themselves Reformed and think that they belong to the Reformed churches and that conceive of the counsel of God and the responsibility and moral freedom of man as two parallel lines, double track, two parallel lines that never meet as far as I can see. I say they are the double track theologians, and that double track theology we as Protestant Reformed churches have rejected in 1924, and still we must have nothing of it. The real and scriptural conception of the relation between man's responsibility and man's freedom to the sovereign counsel of God is this, that that freedom and that counsel of God and that responsibility of man are hemmed in from every side by the counsel of God. If you want to have before your mind a circle, then that circle is the counsel of God. And in that counsel of God stands the morally free and responsible creature that is called man. And that counsel of God hems him in on every side. Not so uh, that, therefore, uh, that there are two parallel lines, but so that man in his moral relation to God is dependent, even as a moral creature, in, even in his moral charge, is dependent upon God. He is not sovereignly free. Man can never be sovereignly free. God only is sovereignly free. And man is forevermore dependent, even as a moral creature, upon God. And not only is he dependent upon God in his counsels, but he is dependent upon God as a moral creature, upon God in his almighty providence. It is not only so that God abstractly determines the moral freedom and responsibility of man, but that in actuality he stands independent. God in his providence rules and governs his every act, his every thought, his every desire. The king's heart in the hand of God, like rivers of water, he turns it with his every will. Man is morally free, oh yeah, free, free of what sense? In the formal sense, beloved, in the formal sense, Moral freedom means that whatever God's counsel and whatever God's providence is, almighty providence determines with regard to man, is nevertheless always the conscious and moral and willing subject of all his actions. That is in the former sense, moral freedom, the state of the creature in which 
He is the willing and conscious subject of all his actions. Without compulsion, from without, God never touches that moral freedom. But that is scriptural, is evident from every part of the Bible. Let me just quote one or two passages, if I may. First of all, I refer you to the Isaiah 10, verse 15. Shall the axe boast against the hand that draws it? That's the king of Assyria. That king of Assyria boasted. Didn't know anything about it. Did not feel at all that he was the tool of God. Felt himself perfectly free in all his acts. Get this. Shall the act boast against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify himself against him that shaketh it? as if the rod should shake itself against the them that lift it up, or as if the staff should lift up itself, as if it were no work. That's God with his counsel and with his almighty providence hemming in Limited from every side the moral creature that is called the king of Assyria. And although God in his mighty providence and by his eternal counsel determines as if it were a saw that is drawn, an axe where is the Lord Hughes determines every man. Nevertheless, he stands there consciously and willingly lifting himself up against the Lord of all. The same is true, by the way, as you well know, of Acts 2, verse 23. The well-known word, where the apostle speaks of the determinate counsel of God, in relation to the wicked crucifixion as follows him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain God's counsel determined the crucifixion God's counsel determined every part and every act of the men that crucified him. Yet they took him by wicked hands and slew him. That's good. Adam's freedom was more than that. In the state of rectitude, Adam's freedom was not only a form of freedom, so that he was a conscious and willing subject of all his actions, he was also materially free. Materially free in a relative sense. By material freedom, I mean that state of the moral and rational creature in which he is also able to love God with all his heart and mind and soul and strength. Adam was not only created a rational moral creature, so that in all his actions he was uh, 
country was unwilling before God, but they were also endowed with the image of God. He stood in true knowledge of love, so that he did love God actually. He stood in positive righteousness, so that it was really his inmost desire to keep the law of God. He stood in perfect holiness, so that all his desires and all his actions and all his emotions and all his inclinations he was consecrated to God. Only his freedom was not the highest freedom as it is expressed in the Latin phrase non peccare to be able not to sin et peccare and also to sin mind you uh, that Latin phrase is not quite correct. The freedom of Adam did not consist in the fact that he could simply choose so that uh, uh, his choice was uh, a sort of a neutral choice so that he could uh, choose uh, to serve God and not to serve God. No, his freedom, as far as he did possess freedom, consisted in the fact uh, that he did love God, that he could keep the law of God, that he could serve him, and his limitation upon his freedom was exactly this, that that freedom did not, was not yet rooted in the Son of God, but was rooted in his own will. That was the limitation. That was also Adam's responsibility. Adam's responsibility was, oh, certainly that as a moral, rational creature, he could respond to God and did respond to God. He had to respond to God. But his responsibility was higher than that. It was also this, uh, that he did love God with all his heart and mind and soul and strength in the state of rectitude. Adam was not responsible for what God made him. We are never responsible for, for what God does. God is responsible for what he does. We are not. Adam was not responsible for what God made him, though he did not immediately make him free in the higher sense of the word. Adam could not say to God, and in fact it never entered his mind to say to God, Why hast thou made me thus? That was God's business. But Adam's responsibility was, and that responsibility he could fulfill as a free moral creature, formally and materially, to love the Lord his God with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and with all the works over which God had placed him. That was responsibility in the state of rectitude. Man fell. Man fell. You must not imagine uh, that you are through with the problem of responsibility when you have uh, talked about the relations between the moral creature and God's counsel.
or between the moral picture and God's providence. You must not imagine uh, that the problem of responsibility ends there. The problem becomes much more serious and becomes much more profound when we begin to speak of man's responsibility and the state of sin. Man fell. That's the problem. The problem the most superficial Pelagian who is always individualistic and at the same time is the most modernistic of all theologians, the Pelagian denies and that's the way he tries to save the responsibility of the fallen man. He denies that man's fall was really such uh, that he became dead in sin and trespasses. He denies that. Man, he says, still has a free will. And God, if you attribute to man a free will or any degree of free will, it seems as if you have no problem in regard to man's responsibility. I say it seems, isn't true. But nonetheless, According to the religion, a man is not dead, he's probably weakened, he's probably sick, but he's not dead, dead in sin and trespasses. That's why, according to him, man is still a responsible being who can choose either or, yes or no, against or for God, and therefore he is responsible. The Armenian does not go quite so far. I say this. I say all this simply because I want to put before you the real problem so that you do not skirmish with terms that you don't know anything about. Oh, it's so easy to talk about responsibility and I'm afraid that most people that talk about responsibility don't know what they're talking about. Darwinian says no, a man is dead in sin and trespasses. He can still will to be saved. That's why you have some contact with him. You can address him in the gospel as a moral creature with moral responsibility and moral freedom. Don't you see? You can present to him a general offer of salvation. That was also 1924, something which we rejected as churches. You can offer him a general promise. He can take it, or he can refuse it. But you address him, you address all men. You address all men as rational 
moral creatures that are able and willing, that are able, no, not willing, but able to will, able to will salvation. That's our meaning. That's not reform. That's not reform. Reform then this. One, that man, the fallen man, is responsible for his own corruption. That's it, Paul. He's responsible that he's corrupt. That's it, Paul. That's it. Secondly, That in that state of corruption, it nevertheless acts as a moral, rational, conscious, willing being. Three, that in that state of corruption, is bound to evil. So that a state is expressed from of old. Uh, Calvinist, again, I would criticize that a little bit, but nevertheless it will stand by the Latin phrase non possessive, non precare, not to be able not to sin. You must remember that when you talk about the moral choice of man in your audience. When you address man in general, you do not address an audience that is willing and able to hear and to receive the gospel to salvation. You do not remember that. Let me explain. Adam fell. That means that he became guilty. Guilt means liability to death. God said to man, the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That word of God was fulfilled. There and then Adam died. He died. But he didn't die. He didn't live. Does not live anymore. Has no life. He's in death. He's in death with the whole creation. The whole creation that fell with him lies in the bondage of corruption. And man, at the head of the creation, lies in utter death. Death, corruption of his moral nature. But we must emphasize a little more. When we say man fell, we must emphasize this. Man fell! Man. That's reformed. That's also denied by the religion. Master. That is, according to the word of God, as you well know, in Adam, the whole human race fell. 
Not Adam, but the whole human race fell. Amen? The whole human race became guilty. And the whole human race became corrupt because of its guilt. What's more, I say, that's also denied by the Pelagian, the superficial, the individualistic, the modernistic Pelagian that always emphasizes man rather than God. I always say, beloved, give me God. If I must make the choice, if I must make the choice to lose man or God, let me lose man. All right to me. No danger. Give me God. That's reform. That's especially present reform. Give me God. There's no salvation in man. But the Pelagian says, beloved, superficially, man is still free. He did not sin in Adam, was not guilty in Adam, did not become corrupt in Adam, he is still free. Oh, he's weak, and what is more, he is liable to imitate, imitate in his freedom, in his free moral choice, as, as, uh, as a bad example, as bad examples all over. You must really take him out of his environment. Modernism, modernism, through and through, all because of the wrong conception of responsibility. What is the responsibility of fallen man? Beloved, I would say in this connection you can work it out if you want to. It's worthwhile. But please don't speak in a superficial way anymore of responsibility. Work it out. I can speak of responsibility of the fallen man in three ways. In the first place, there is corporate responsibility. Corporate responsibility. By that I mean, beloved, that we are all responsible for the sin which Adam committed in paradise. That is our sin. And we are responsible for that sin. That's scripted. That's the word of God. Not have to read it to you, do I? Read Romans 5. By one man, sin entered into the world. And death by sin. And so death passed upon all men because all have sinned. All have sinned when? In paradise. That's where we sinned. That's where we became guilty. Or if you please read in the 18th verse. By one man, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. That's judicial, that's legal. So there is corporate responsibility. You may deny it, of course. In the proud Pelagianism of your wicked heart, you may say, I have nothing to do with the sin of Adam. You can never escape it. God judges you and me guilty by nature of the sin which Adam committed because he created the human race a corporation with Adam as the head. Corporate responsibility. In the second place, 
There is organic responsibility. By that I mean that even as Adam became guilty and therefore corrupt, so we become guilty in him and corrupt in him and the corrupt tree brings forth corrupt fruit. The corrupt stock brings forth corrupt branches. And yet we are responsible for our corrupt nature. That's hard, is it? Hard? Yes, but you talk about responsibility in the light of scripture, don't you? You don't talk about responsibility in the superficial philosophical sense. We talk about responsibility in the light of the Bible. The scripture. We are responsible for our own corrupt nature. Which we nevertheless have received from Adam. Because from him and in him we also receive his guilt. You say to God, why hast thou made me thus? God doesn't ask. He's God. You are a creature. But that's the truth. And thirdly, there is a cause individual responsibility. The responsibility of man for his own moral act for in that corrupt nature he still stands. That's, that's the trouble. No, that's not the trouble. But that's the relation nevertheless. In that corrupt nature which he received from Adam and which he received on the basis of the fact that he is found guilty in Adam's sin, in that corrupt nature, he still nevertheless stands with a moral choice. As a rational moral being, who can only choose sin, never will or desire anything but sin, Non possum, non peccare. That's his state, and that's his responsibility. Not to be able, not to sin, because from an inward impulse, not from an outward compulsion, but from an inward impulse, he loves the darkness rather than the light. And God holds him responsible. Nor, beloved, is the problem solved when you simply speak of the counsel of God and the providence of God in relation to man's freedom and responsibility, or when you speak simply of man's total depravity and corruption, there's still another fact. The problem still remains when you speak of sovereign grace and responsibility and moral freedom. Also that problem remains. Don't you see in our scripture and against our scripture has been raised the objection that God, by sovereign grace, justifies the ungodly. That's salvation. God justifies the ungodly. And he gives no account. He gives no account. Oh, I, I look forward. I look forward in faith to the time of the complete theodicy 
कंप्लीट तैयार तैयार मीन्स जस्टिफिकेशन ऑफ गॉड इन द मॉर कॉन्शियसनेस ऑफ द मॉर क्रिचर एंड वन आई स्पीक ऑफ दर्सी आई मेक गॉड द सब्जेक्ट and the predicate righteousness or justification the act of god in other words we do not justify god god justifies himself that's sufficient i do not have to solve the problem of scripture concerning God's righteousness in regard to evil and sin and man and damnation and salvation oh how could i ever attempt even to approach that problem all we have to do is take scripture but i take scripture in the hope in the sure hope that God will justify himself also in my consciousness by his spirit so that I may then see face to face now however that is a problem don't you see don't you see that justification means exactly that the justified ones are not responsible for their sins justification i am not responsible for my sins before god and i christ is christ is responsible for my sins I say and don't you ever tell the congregation that they're responsible for their own sin God forbid the bad shepherd if you do you must tell the congregation to cast their sins upon Christ tell them they are no longer responsible for their sins You say that's a dangerous doctrine? Of course it is. Seems that way. It is. Seems that way. That was always the objection. That was always the objection against the biblical conception of justification. Always. forget that was already the objection in uh, the scriptures when Paul according to the inspiration of the spirit had developed the, the uh, doctrine of justification they finally came and said what shall we say then what shall we say then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound is where the objection is raised in uh, the Hanover Catechism not against the counsel of God but exactly against the in the connection with the doctrine of justification the objection is raised does not this doctrine make men careless and profane what will you tell your congregation Would you tell the congregation, yes, 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 but, 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 God forbid. Would you tell your congregation, oh, you're not responsible for your sin, Christ is responsible, but, 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 you must have something to do. God forbid, you kill him. 
You kill the people of God by such preaching. That's not true. That's not scripture. That's not the confession. That's not the Hanover Catechism. The Hanover Catechism says, No, sir. To just this doctrine of absolutely free justification that casts all the responsibility of my individual sins upon Christ, not make me careless and profane by this answer. It's impossible. It is impossible. Why impossible? Why is that impossible? Because he that is justified by grace is also sanctified by grace. And therefore says spontaneously when you tell him, now you can sin as you please. God forbid. God forbid. How shall I that am dead to sin living along with him? That is the answer. The only answer that's the Christian's responsibility, if you please. The Christian is free in the highest sense of the word. Formally free, oh yes, but also materially free in the highest possible sense because his freedom is no longer rooted in his own free will, but is rooted in the Son of God. If the Son of God shall make you free, then you are free indeed. That is freedom. And that, at the same time, is the highest responsibility. Don't you ever give the congregation a moral lesson. What you must have is the gospel of the freedom in Jesus Christ our Lord. When you preach that gospel, the gospel of the cross, in all its truth, there's no danger, there's no danger of leading the congregation and ways of laxity and passivity on the, on the contrary. That congregation, standing in the freedom of faith, will be strong and fight a good fight of faith, even unto the end, looking forward to the hope eternal, when all that is of sin shall have been destroyed. And when Freedom shall have been perfected. Freedom and responsibility. And in that everlasting freedom, man, the redeemed man, shall forever thank God and his sovereign grace. And his palm and say, O oh God, I love thee. I have said. Beloved candidate, that is your peculiar responsibility. I hope that you may see the place where that responsibility can be exercised by you. Doesn't look very bright, does it? And not many opportunities for calling and for calls. Don't worry. God is God. I know that He has led you thus far. It was your responsibility for years before to study and no more. It is your responsibility now to be candidates and no more. I hope and pray 
as we used to pray often, that God may nevertheless provide for your place somehow, somewhere, to proclaim this truth, the Protestant Reformed truth, in all its strength and in all its purity, and that so you may be a light in the midst of his church. And now, beloved brethren, I'm very glad that I may have the opportunity to hand you your diploma.